popular and prolific jazz groups. They are called Chocolade, which is Ukrainian for chocolate. And that was a very jazzy rendition of an ancient, ancient uh, Ukrainian ritual song, Ivana Kupala, which is the summer solstice um, fertility rite uh, rituals going back to pagan times. Chocolade with Oi na Ivana. Dobry večer, šanovni radio suhači, ta vitaju vas vsih na radio peredaču naš holos radio Krinskoho Korinja, kotra podjeci vam jak svičajno što subote o šosti hodeni na bahatomovni radio stanci AM 1320 CHMB u misti Vancouveri. Pre mikrofoni Pavlina Makori, djakuju što vebule suhačama sjerni večeri, ta rišala je prebuta zimnoju nastupnu hodenu, me majmo dušici kavi novene nas šednišnji prošami. Hello there and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host, Paula Temchik-Makori, Pokerinska Pavlina, and I'm delighted to have you with me. We've got a very interesting program lined up for you. We've got an interview with a member of Parliament, a Canadian, obviously, um, James Bazan. He is a, a shadow minister for... Department of Defense, and he'll be talking about uh, Ukraine and things Canadian on his visit to Vancouver. As well, we have uh, another interview on Ukrainian Jewish heritage with Dave Bloom, and he's with an organization that uh, is exploring his roots in Drohobych and Boroslaw in Ukraine, and he'll be talking about his organization, um, about that community, and restoration of a synagogue that has just been reopened. So stay tuned for all of that. We've also got our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest, and great Ukrainian music. And on this show, we'll, our music will be focusing on uh, Kupala, since uh, we've just passed the summer solstice. So we started out with Oinaivana with Chocolade, and now we're going to bring it much much closer to home, a Vancouver-based group, uh, Slavic Soul. They are Zelia. Here they are from their second CD, Willowbridge, and a song called Kupala.
Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for over 50 years. Since 1963, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing arts and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Hollis listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit ShochenkoFoundation.com. group that often sings a cappella, kind of like a Ukrainian version of the nylons, only with mostly women. And they are called Jedala. That was uh, Kupalska. And pretty much all the songs had the same title, Oina Ivana or Kupala, Kupalska, uh, variations on a the theme. So um, that was Jedala. They labeled that one Kupalska. <laughs> James Bazan has been a member of Parliament of Canada since 2004, representing the riding of Selkirk Interlake Eastman in Manitoba. Over the course of his parliamentary career, he has chaired many committees, including for the environment and national defense. In 2013, Mr. Bazan was appointed by Prime Minister Stephen Harper as a parliamentary secretary to the Minister of National Defense, and he was active on files dealing with military procurement, mental health issues in the Canadian Armed Forces, the war against ISIS, and Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Mr. Bazan currently serves in the official opposition shadow cabinet as the shadow minister for defense for the Conservative Party. Mr. Bazan is an outspoken critic of Russian aggression in Eastern Europe and protecting Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and human rights. As a result, he was one of 13 Canadian officials sanctioned and banned by the Russian government in 2014. He was recently in Vancouver to meet with the Ukrainian community out here, and I caught up with him by phone shortly after the meeting. So welcome to the show, James, and to the West Coast. Hey, thanks for having me on the show again, Paula. 
Well, it's great to have you, and I've got a few questions for you. First of all, um, a few weeks ago, you as Shadow Minister for National Defense, along with Aaron O'Toole, the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, sent out a press release pledging to provide lethal weapons to Ukraine under a conservative government led by Andrew Scheer. Yet the Harper Conservative government was adamant about providing non-lethal assistance only. That was a bit of a bone of contention with the Ukrainian community. So what has brought about the change of mind in the Conservative Party? Well, uh, you know, I was fortunate in the Harper government to actually accompany a number of our shipments to Ukraine of non-lethal military equipment. And I can tell you that the concern at the time was the issue of corruption within the Ukrainian military, Mm -hmm. the potential that the weapons would fall in the hands of of, uh, others, not not just the uh, Russian operatives uh, in Donbass and Crimea, but actually sold on the open market that could end up in the hands of of ISIS terrorists. So um, those concerns uh, have changed or been addressed, I think, in in recent years, uh, partly because of the reforms that are happening within the Ukraine military, and more specifically uh, because of the training that our troops have done through Operation Unifier of Ukraine forces. The, the military uh, that exists today in Ukraine is, is um, one that's uh, much more professional than it was four years ago, and um, they, they're very patriotic, and of course they're uh, standing against Putin and his proxies in Donbass. So we were proud to come out and say that an Andrew Scheer led conservative government that we will provide the lethal weapons to Ukraine. Currently, uh, a surplus of weapons that are sitting in storage that were bought and were supposed to be donated to the Kurdish Peshmerga uh, in their battle against ISIS in Iraq, and it hasn't happened. Uh, liberal are giving and blame, and uh, based upon comments made just last week by Chief of Defense Staff, it doesn't look like the weapons will ever get delivered to um, the Peshmerga. So. If, if that's the reality, then those weapons, or the exact weapons that, that Ukraine has been calling for, includes you know, rocket-propelled grenades and anti-tank missiles, sniper rifles, chain guns, uh, mortar systems, all that is in this, uh, in sitting in storage and collecting dust. So um, we would take those weapons and send them right to uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. Hmm. Well, recently I spoke with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Reeves, uh, the commanding officer of the 4th Rotation of Operation Unifier, which was launched under the Harper government, and this rotation ended in March of this year, and I understand a 5th rotation is on its way or already there. Now, this military training mission was set to expire in 2017, but the Liberal government extended it to 2019. Any ch- any chance that they might change their mind, um, as they did, to extend Operation Unifier to send those lethal weapons? Uh, well, uh, there's been uh, a direct response uh, to actually a, a standing committee on national defense. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm the vice chair of that committee, and I argue quite adamantly that we include the supply of lethal weapons to the Ukrainian armed forces, and the response from the government is that they uh, will not do it. So I'm not expecting any donations from the liberals, military uh, kinetic weapons, uh, which is unfortunate. So we are headed towards 2019, the election year here, which uh, coincides with the Liberals only extending Operation Unifier for two years because they want to hopefully re-announce it just before the next federal election. Okay. So a little bit of plain politics there, but um, they didn't expand Operation Unifier. Uh, it is um, unfortunate. They, they have the opportunity to do so. But at least we still have our troops over there. Um, the, the rotation changed out, as you mentioned, in March, and we still have 200 soldiers that are there, you know, saving lives. Um, they are training the uh, Ukrainian troops to be better soldiers, to come up to NATO standards, and uh, by being better trained and increasing the size of their non-commissioned officer base, and mm-hmm. uh, they're going to continue to provide more leadership at the front, and by, by doing that, you're going to have better troops that are going to uh, have higher survivability rates. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is one thing that the the Liberal government did not backtrack on. Uh, they did cancel a satellite. Yeah, that? again, they, we used to reinstate the uh, supply of satellite images from the radar constellation that we have. It's something that uh, Ukraine desperately needs so they can see in real time and have eyes on the ground of what the Russian forces are doing on Donbass so that they can monitor the movement of, of heavy artillery that's coming across the border. 
So that intel is not being provided. And again, uh, it's partially a, the appeasement mentality that, that the Trudeau government has is that they think that by trying to play nice with Russia, that uh, they're going to somehow or other stop Putin's aggression, which uh, is actually contrary to the record. Putin yeah. is provoked by weakness. And every time that he's given any leeway, he takes advantage of it. Sure, yeah. And um, so we need to continue to stand strong with Ukraine, supply them with all the information, and they need to be in a position of strength. And only then, uh, in my opinion, will we see uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation back off. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've been front and center of Canada-Ukraine relations since the Maidan, if not before. You've received numerous awards at home and abroad, including Ukraine's highest civilian award, the Order of Prince Yaroslav the Wise. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, and that was for your private member's bill to recognize the Holodomor's genocide. And when again was that? So it was actually uh, of May of 2008 when the bill passed. So we just went by the 10th anniversary Ah. of uh, having that legislation. And of course, uh, although uh, us in the Ukrainian community will always recognize Holodomor as a genocide, Mm -hmm. that legislation was the first in the Western world to recognize and and declare the Holodomor a genocide and to formally establish the National Day Memorial which happens on the fourth Saturday of every November. So, Really? That was Canada that started that? Yeah, so it was done, of course, in Ukraine. First, yeah, yeah. But we're the first country outside of Ukraine to, to do it. Ah. And uh, it, it did get the ball going. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's been 10 years. We still have to uh, make sure that we are raising public awareness, that uh, when schools teach atrocities and genocide, that Holodomor is part of that education. So everything that we can do as community leaders, as individuals, is to increase that public awareness and to reach out to our school boards and make sure that the departments of education are working that into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for putting forth that private member's bill. And uh, you're at it again. In 2016, you introduced the Justice for Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act, more commonly known as the Sergei Magnitsky Law. And that received royal assent in 2017. So tell us about that. I presume it's what got you sanctioned and banned by Russia? Well, I've already been banned oh. uh, by, by uh, <laughs> Russia um, by them. But because uh, uh, of my outspoken uh, criticism of Vladimir Putin and the invasion of Ukraine, uh, especially in Donbass and Crimea. So I got banned before Magnitsky. I was in that first tranche of 13 Canadian officials, mm-hmm. which includes Andrew Shearer and, of course, Christopher Phelan. Yeah, well, congratulations um, so, on that. <laughs> and uh, we all wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah. Uh, but it's because we stand up on principle. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's about standing with our friends and allies, and, of course, Ukraine is family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we... Uh, on Maninsky, I, just like Holdemore, I worked very closely uh, with Senator Reno Andertrip from Saskatchewan, and uh, she championed it in the Senate, and I championed it in the House, and uh, we're able to get the Sergey Maninsky law passed. But it had opposition first. Uh, Stephen Dion was against it. Really? Uh, the liberals were going to vote against it. Uh, after he was, uh, you know, his whole appeasement agenda was, was pushed out of the uh, Liberal cabinet front bench, uh, and Christopher Peeling came in. He did work with asked closely uh, with uh, Raynell and I to make some amendments to the bill. And I think at the end of the day, we got a very strong piece of legislation mm. that gives the government of Canada the ability to unilaterally sanction corrupt foreign officials who are enriching themselves through corruption and being kleptocrats, and as well as violate the, the human rights of their citizens. So it's more than just the Russian operatives. It also includes other countries. And uh, the number one name on the list is uh, mm-hmm. Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela. Oh. Um, but there is, you know, uh, over 400 names of Russians and Ukrainians who are responsible for the conflict in, in Donbass and the illegal annexation of Crimea. Well, and here in Canada, I guess that opens the door for the government to prosecute money laundering through real estate and, and the like. Exactly. There, there's no way that Canada should ever be used as a safe haven for these corrupt officials to use Canada to hide their wealth, to hide their families when things go sideways for them back in their own countries, or even just allow their, their ch- children to come here to be educated. So we need to continue to stand strong and send the message that their illegal activities, going out there and stealing from their own citizens and violating their human rights in the process, that has to stop. And uh, Canada and a group of nations will continue to do that. And that, 
that's why I'm in Vancouver. The, the person that has, has pushed this agenda is Bill Browder, mm-hmm. uh, who used to have a Hermitage financial group based out of Moscow. His accountant and lawyer, Sergei Maninsky, who uncovered a major tax fraud in Russia, was, of course, arrested, beaten, tortured, and ultimately murdered in prison. And, you know, all he did was stand up for the citizens of Russia to expose these corrupt government officials who are enriching themselves by millions of dollars. Mm. And, of course, when they do that, they have to hide that wealth. And they uh, wire it offshore and into other countries, including Canada. And so we can't allow that to happen. And so uh, more and more countries are developing Maninsky laws that we can sanction individuals, not just governments, but uh, sanction the individuals Mm -hmm. who are enriching themselves in this process. That's great. So Bill Browder is in town today, you said? Yeah, so Bill's uh, here. He's actually speaking at an event for an organization that stands up for freedom of speech and freedom of the press around the world. So this sits in perfectly with Bill's passion now, uh, which is to see more Western countries adapt sanctioning legislation based upon the Naginsky law that we have here in Canada, to have the state. And uh, that has recently also been accepted in Lithuania and Estonia mm-hmm. and Latvia. Mm-hmm. Not to make a, a really bad joke about this, but um, he's probably in a fair bit of danger. Uh, th- there'll be a meal uh, served. Uh, presumably it'll, it, it'll be safe. But I, w- I would imagine he's always looking over his shoulder. Yeah, so we know that Russia has no problem with uh, assassinating or attempting to assassinate poisoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone they see as, as, as adversarial. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is look what happened in Britain this year and what happened to Matvienko, you know, and a few years ago in Britain. And um, and Yushchenko uh, and Yushchenko back in, in the and Yushchenko himself, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. twice was or, or was uh, attempted to assassinate was. Uh, you know, I always call it the plutonium tea. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, essentially feeding them radioactive materials. And in the case of this last case in Britain, it was a, a very toxic poison that was developed during the Soviet era. And so only one place it could actually come yeah. from. And so uh, for, you know, Putin to deny it, it was his people. You know, I, I think all of us know that uh, he always like plausible deniability, but um, his fingerprints are all over this. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, um, thanks so much for taking the time to give us this update and also for coming out to visit us here in Vancouver. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to meet you in person, but thank you for for this phone call and agreeing to come on the show for this interview. And uh, all the best to you. Just thank you so much for all the work you've done in the past on behalf of Ukraine, Canada's Ukrainian community, not to mention all Canadians. So keep up the great work, and I hope we'll get to speak with you again in the near future. All the best. Uh, I, I appreciate your kind words very much, Paulette. And anytime you want me on the show, I'm more than happy to uh, give you a call. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. okay bye-bye. You too. Там 
як латки край води, що ж зозуля накувала нам розлуку назавжди. І тепер лише сни та згадки, думить іншого вона, хто забрав узеньку кладку проти світлого вікна. From Calgary, that was Stephanie Romanuk, and another song about Kupala. This is called Footbridge, Kladka. This is CHMB, AM 1320, Vancouver. You're listening to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio on AM 1320 CHMB, Vancouver. I'm your host, Pavlina. I'd like to just give a big shout-out to Mike Piniansky from the town of Angus in central Ontario. Mike and his wife are regular listeners to the Nash Holos podcasts. It was Mike who made last week's interview with Lieutenant Colonel Reeves possible by connecting everyone who needed to get connected to make it happen. He's a great connector. Mike and I connected on Twitter, actually, where he is a powerhouse tweeter of all things Ukrainian with the Twitter handle of Mikhailo North. So if you're on Twitter and aren't following him, you definitely want to do that right away. It's the absolute best way to keep informed about Ukrainian events and issues in the Twitterverse and beyond. And that's how I do it on Twitter. So follow Mikhailo North on Twitter. And last but not least, a huge thank you, Mike, for supporting Nash Holos on Patreon. I hope you're enjoying the collection of Nash Holos Ukrainian Proverbs, which I sent to you as a small token of my appreciation for your generous ongoing support of the show with your Patreon pledge. Duja Diakuyu. And also, thank you for all the great retweeting. And we'll see you again soon on Twitter. Up next, Alexis Kohan from Winnipeg. And this is from her first recording made quite a while ago. It is called Sariyevna. It is her solo and focusing on ancient ritual songs. Here she is now with one of her Kupala songs. Kupala. Oh, 
And now for a look at Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage, then and now, brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome, Vitayu. I'm Pavlina, host of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio, with another feature interview on Ukrainian Jewish heritage. Dave Bloom is a member of the board of an organization dedicated to preserving the story of two Jewish communities and surrounding areas in Ukraine. One of them is called Drohobych and the other is called Borislav. Recently, a synagogue was restored in this area and Dave has kindly agreed to join us by Skype from his home in Israel to tell us about himself and about the project. So welcome, Dave. Thank you for joining us Thank here. Thank you, Paulette. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, you live in Israel. Tell us just a little bit about your background, how you ended up on this project and, and in Israel, because you speak perfect, almost unaccented English. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I my personal story is that I was born in what is now Zimbabwe, and it was previously Rhodesia. And I came to live in Israel in 1973, and I've been here since then. Uh, I'm married with two children, and I've been always interested, fascinated in researching my roots. And it's actually my mother's side, my maternal grandparents, who were born in Borislav, which was one of the towns that we've mentioned. And um, my mother was born there as well, and they came here to Israel actually in 1920. Oh. Um, so my mother grew up in Israel, but I always had a fascination about the you know the, the story of, of those communities and where my grandparents came from. I've been back there a few times. It's a hobby of mine, and I'm on the board of this organization, which helps to preserve the stories of these two towns and the surrounding villages. There's um, a number of villages like Stri and Schodnitsa and Truskavitz in the region there, which we also try to preserve their stories. Fascinating. And so um, how we got connected on Facebook was, uh, it might have been something from Marla Rosher Osborne, who's been on our program talking about her restoration work in right. uh, Rohatin, which I think is pretty close right. to... Well, it's a bit further north. It's about an hour north of our area, yes. Okay. So uh, you have always been interested in your roots, and so... What connected us was this story about a restoration of a synagogue in Drohobych. Right. So tell us about that. Well, this, this synagogue, I mean, I've seen the synagogues on my visits over the last sort of 10 years, and it was in really sorry state. It was really a ruin of a building hmm. um, that had been basically destroyed during the Second World War. And, of course, when the Russians and, and the whole Russian control over Ukraine during those many years, which did not allow religious uh, activity, mm -hmm. the building was left to basically ruin. Uh, I think at some stage it was used as a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, but this was a, a very impressive building that was built in the 1860s. This was one of the largest synagogues in Galicia. Galicia was basically, as you know, a, a large stretch uh, mm -hmm. of land spanning what is now Poland and Ukraine. And there were about a million Jews in the area of Galicia in in the sort of early 19th and 20th centuries. And Drohovich, uh, I believe, had one of, I think, one of, if not the largest, the largest synagogue in the area. So basically, in the in the last, say, five years, with some generous donations, a refurbishment program started and and it came to fruition this week where we had a ceremony just yesterday, a very impressive ceremony, a somber ceremony in which several hundred people attended, both from Israel, from America, from the local communities, from Lviv, and basically re-inaugurated this uh, wonderful building. The work has been fantastically done. It has all the infrastructure for the synagogue with the, the ark and, and uh, bima. Um, what's, what's that? That's where the rabbi normally stands, and that's where he, he prays from. Okay. Um, it's unlikely to be an active synagogue Aww. because there's very few Jews left in the city. But the plans are to turn it into a cultural center, into a learning center, into a museum. And we're hoping this will help to bring the story of, of the Jewish community that lived there for many hundreds of years, will help uh, to educate the local communities about the story of the Jewish community there. And um, we have plans ourselves. We've, we've done a couple of exhibitions. One of them was shown at the event, the opening event, telling the story of, of these communities. 
And uh, we hope it will be a vehicle for education, I think, basically, will be its, its main purpose. So tell us what actually happened to it that you had to restore. You had mentioned that it was um, a warehouse or just basically left neglected during the Soviet era. Right. And, of course, you know that right. was the fate of, of all churches and houses of worship throughout the Soviet Union. Right. But what happened to the Jew, the community? We know that a lot of the Holocaust, we've been talking about this with, uh, with Marla and, and others, Julia Krasinski of uh, Remember Us, you probably uh, are aware of, of that organization as well. Right. So a lot of people are getting back to their roots and, and are exploring what actually happened right. to their families. Most of the Holocaust took place by bullets in, in that area, um, as much as, sure. as, as in death camps. Although I was reading on your website right. that many of the residents of, of Drohobich perished at, at Belzec, a notorious That's death right. camp. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, but the vast majority were tr- were sent by train to Belzitz, which is um, you know so just a few hours a train ride. I've been there a couple of times. It's a, a really horrific uh, story. It was, it was a pure death camp. I mean, the people oh. came in and they were they were slaughtered as they arrived. Good lord. Um, there is a site in in the, what's called the Bronitsha Forest outside Drohovich, where uh, Jews were also taken and lined up and killed in. They, they had to dig the trenches first, oh. and, and then uh, they were shot and they were buried in, in these trenches. This is a large memorial site now, which has been preserved and uh, has been covered over, and we visit there every year. We do a memorial service there as well. Uh, so many thousands were killed in the forests around Drohovich and Borislav, but the vast majority were taken by train on an industrial scale and, and murdered at Belzitz. Good Lord. How big was the community before the Holocaust? In 1939, Drohovich was about 17,000 Jews, and uh, Bojislav was about 14,000 Jews. Wow. And at the end of the war in 1945, approximately 550 survived in oh. Drohovich, and about 350, 400 survived in Borislav. Wow. wow. And I can just imagine the, the trauma Indeed. And, and, you know, what, what is, at least for us, inspiring is that we have been able to find a lot of these survivors, many of whom came to Israel. And now when we have an annual memorial service, we have a thousand people attending and, and we see the children and grandchildren involved and connected. And, mm. and there is a feeling of a continuity, which is very inspiring. Yeah. And, and that's what was, what was meant to be destroyed, wasn't it? So, so yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's that's wonderful to hear. So how how did you hook up with uh, people in Drohobich? Was it just on a trip? I mean, you've got obviously a very strong connection because you're so so involved. <laughs> well, you know, we have over the years been in touch uh, as through our roots trips. We've had roots trips going back since the 1960s. Ah, so really? every yes, if you if you know, I'll I'll give you our website afterwards, and you can see mm. some of those recent more recent roots trips that we have recorded. The earlier ones, unfortunately, were not well recorded. But there was always a relationship with the remnants of the community. Now, the remnants were very, very sparse. Uh, There was one famous gentleman by the name of Alfred Schreier, who was a a famous musician and a singer and a violinist. And he was kind of denoted as the last Jew of Drohovich. And I met him on a couple of occasions. And he was well connected with our organization. Every time we came, we would connect with him. Unfortunately, he passed away a few a few years ago. But today, there are approximately 20 or 30 Jews in Drohovich, and most of them migrated there from Russia. They are not native to Drohovich, but most of them migrated and have established their lives in Drohovich for all kinds of reasons. Interesting. So, so very few of the original inhabitants actually have descendants there now. It's very few. I, I don't. We don't know of any actually. Really? Wow! There. Wow! Yeah. So so it was yeah. wiped out. Amazing. You know. It was wiped out. Wow. Yeah. You know, Dave. I you know I've been hearing about. You know, we studied, and fortunately, you know, people were uh, were smart enough in in the of the survivors of the Holocaust to get this story out, so people know about it now. And right. you know, some of the stories have almost become cliched about you know the the digging the trenches and stuff. And to talk to somebody who's actually there and right. at the site and and realizing it was their own relatives 
Right. And you, there is, what is this? They say the six degrees of separation, but it's really it's only, only two, right. isn't it? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very emotional experience to be there and to experience it. And to, you know, I've done a lot of interviews of Holocaust survivors. We have a kind of a project in our organization which is similar to the, the famous Spielberg project. And we have approximately 100 living survivors still in Israel that we are in touch with and we support and we interview. And, and some of them have written books and some of them. I have an uncle. Well, he's actually a, he was a cousin of my mother's, the first cousin of my mother's, who was a 14-year-old boy during the war. And he survived by living in the forest. He lived in the area of Borislav. Mm-hmm. They dug a cave and they, they just lived like literally, you know, just off the land and whatever they could do to survive. And he witnessed most of his family being slaughtered by the Germans. And he wrote a a book, which for me was very emotional. And it really brought for me a very personal connection to to that tragedy, which I had not had uh, growing up as a youngster in Africa. You know, that was was so far away for me. Um, So it's for me been a personal journey. And I, I feel that it's important to help others who want to uh, engage and, and explore their roots. It's one of the, the sort of the missions of our organization is to help people who wish to explore their roots and mm-hmm. to understand what a rich and vibrant community we had there. Yeah, and it's a, it's a story absolutely needs to be shared and the world needs to to understand what, what happened. And we need to rebuild. It's, it's, it's really important work that you're doing. So tell us about your organization. It has quite a long name, as I recall you telling me earlier. <laughs> the official name is that we are the descendants of, of Drohovich, Borislav, and vicinity. So we also incorporate uh, some villages around Drohovich and Borislav. Just a bit of background for those of you who don't know. The original Jews came to that area in about the 15th century, and they were drawn there by the discovery of salt uh, there were salt mines in the area, and that was the main industry of that time, salt. Hmm. Later on in the, in the mid-19th century, in approximately 1840, 1850, oil was discovered. And in fact, Jews were involved in the first experiments in distilling oil, raw oil and producing petroleum products. Really? And so Borislav, over quite a long period of probably about 75 years, developed a very large industry where the wells were, where the production was done. And Drohovich became more the sort of the financial center and the administrative center for the companies that ran these, this oil industry. Wow. And, of course, it attracted a lot of Jews uh, who, found, who found work in the area. Because mm-hmm. the late 19th century for Jews and most of the Pale of Settlement, for example, was very, very harsh. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had very difficult lives. Mm-hmm. And, and this was a, a bit of a, a center of wealth and of, of economic boom. And as I said, the numbers grew and grew until just before the war, there were nearly 30,000 uh, Jews living in the area. Wow. Amazing. So, so Borislav, as I said, was the production area. And today, if you visit there, there are still some wells that are working wells that are still operating there. And in fact, Borislav at one point had the third largest oil production in the world. Uh, so big companies like Shell and British Petroleum started investing in the area as well. So there was a large interest in that area, especially, of course, when Germany invaded the region in 1942 during the war. They needed that oil for their, for their war, the war machine. This is an amazing story. I had no idea. I'm sure many listeners had no idea. So how is it right. then? So what happened then? Uh, was it World War One, the collapse of the Habsburg Empire? Uh, how is it that that was the third largest oil production center in the world? And now, you know, we're getting um, oil from OPEC and we're uh, this right. terrible, uh, you're in the middle of it, uh, the, the Mideast conflict's <laughs> been going on for decades and decades. And, you know, we're, we're squabbling right. here in the Canada and the States over oil and pipelines and things like that. And, and this, right. the, <laughs> this is the first I've heard of it. It's amazing. <laughs> what a story. Yeah. So what's going well, on now with it now? Is it just closed down? Well, it has declined a lot. The economy uh, in Ukraine generally has declined. But that particular area where the oil was basically, I guess, either overpumped or, you know, there were just limited reserves. And by the 1940s, oil production had dropped, although it was still high. It was no longer 
as I said, the third largest, which was probably much smaller in production. Oh, I see. And uh, a lot of these big companies had come in and taken over production. And in fact, Jews who were living there, a lot of them lost their jobs. There was very high unemployment during the 1930s and early 40s because of some of these big production companies had come in and taken over. So yeah. some stories just never change over time, do they, Dave, <laughs> in history? <laughs> so your your organization then is based in Tel Aviv? Well, we're based in Israel, yes. We have a, a very active website. Uh, if you look on Google for Drohovich Borislav, you'll find our website, which is in Hebrew and in English. And we have a really a large online archive of a lot of the stories of the survivors, of their families, books that were written, a lot of film interviews that we've done, a lot of the roots trips that we've done over the years we've recorded and are on there. And it is a, it is a source of tremendous uh, value and information for any family of that area that wishes to research their roots. Indeed, and for anybody just interested in this utterly fascinating story, and it's only one of many that are are going on uh, right now. As I'm finding out doing this this series, Ukrainian Jewish Heritage, on our show, there's, there's it's wonderful to see this interest and to see this reconnection of the two communities that outside forces have been working so hard to keep apart. So congratulations on the work on this restoration project um, of the synagogue, and hopefully some listeners will have a chance to actually go and see it and uh, and learn right. about it and see it firsthand. Thank you so much for joining us, for sharing this story, Dave. Good luck in your work, and again, tell us where to find you online. So it's, uh, it's drohovich-borislav, www.drohovich, which is D-R-O, H-O-B-Y-C-Z dash Borislav that's B-O-R-Y-S-L-A-W dot org and on that menu you can choose either the English or the Hebrew version and basically if you go to the section in English under knowing there's a menu there of books and of uh, documentations that we've done over the years and then there's a section on route trips and there's galleries there's a lot of information in there. Okay, and the, you'll find the Facebook page the same, Drohobich dash Borislav as well. Okay. We have an active uh, Facebook group. We have a Facebook page with uh, several thousand people connected on that. And it is on a daily basis being updated. And people are welcome to join that if they're, if they're interested in following our activities. Awesome. And I thank you, Paulette, for giving me the opportunity of telling this, the story of our communities. And it is just a microcosm of many, many other communities that, that existed in Galicia and in Poland and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. We're just a very small microcosm of that, of that much larger story. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you once again, Dave, for coming on, sharing your story, and all the best in your work, and hope our paths cross someday soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Ukrainian Jewish Heritage is brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter, based in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about their work, visit their website and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Transcripts and audio files of this and earlier broadcasts of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage are available at their website, ukrainianjewishencounter.org, as well as at the Nasholos website, www.nasholos.com. Пришлось, девка, 
Zolotyi Klyuchi from Ukraine with a song about girls doing kupala. For the very best in Ukrainian programming, make sure to tune in to Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio Saturdays from 6 to 7 p.m. on our flagship show in Vancouver right here on AM 1320 CHMB on the radio dial and online at am1320.com. In between broadcasts, please visit us at www.nasholos.com. If you miss the live radio transmissions, that's where you'll get the podcast links as well as other audio files, transcripts, and more. There's also a link to our Patreon site, which I hope you'll consider following and engaging with me there, as well as supporting the show. Incidentally, you can also support the show at no cost through the Amazon links found at the Nosh Holos website. And again, that's www.noshholos.com. I love to hear from you, so please send in your suggestions, dedications, and requests. Your comments are always welcome. Linevi tachvori zaujde biduyut. And our proverb of the week translates as the lazy and the sick always suffer. And with that, we've come to the end of our program. To wrap things up, not quite a Kupala song, but sort of on the same theme. The Ukrainian old-timers with the wedding presentation march. I'm Pavlina, on behalf of all of us here at Nash Holos and AM 1320. Thanks for listening and Dobranich! <laughs> Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.